0: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: I I think labels have those dual outcomes of offering ways in which we can verbalize identities so that we find other people so that we can talk about these things. But at the same time, they are also restrictive in the sense, too, that once you have said, like, I'm a non-binary person, or I'm a trans woman. There will be people in your life who kind of, they're like, okay, perfect. Can you please stay there?
0: Welcome to a new episode of Chosen Family. I'm Trana Winter.
2: And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. That was Andrea Bennett, you just heard. They're the author of the essay collection, Like a Boy, But Not a Boy. We spoke to Andrea about being a queer millennial navigating housing insecurity, overcoming imposter syndrome and being a non-binary parent. More with them later on the show.
0: Also, I got the chance to speak to Richie Shazam, who is this trans non-binary fashion model artist and co-host of a fantastic new TV series called Shine True. Don't miss that.
2: Mother's Day was just a few days ago, and I saw all these posts on social media about everyone bragging that their mom is the best mom in the world, even though that's mathematically impossible, and everyone being so close. Are you triggered? (laughs) Wow, good question. Um, I'm close to my mom. I love her, and I'm so thankful, but it's a complicated relationship. My mom is not a typical mom you know, like she's a cool mom. (laughs) She's a cool mom, but she's not trying to be cool. She just had me when she was 20. So she's kind of an older sister. Her and my dad separated when I was seven. So we grew up together. We had this very intense relationship, kind of. It was the two of us against the world for so many years. And then eventually she had a new partner, my stepdad, who died from cancer a few years later. So we've been through a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, and um, I'm so lucky and so grateful. For, so mostly, this is how I feel. I'm like, wow, like I, this has been such a journey, and she's still here, and I'm I'm really really happy about that. But she had a child. She had me because she she wanted a son who would never abandon her, and she said that to me, and that's costed me twenty five thousand dollars. <laughs> therapy (laughs) and that's fine but it's just like it's a lot so when we every year in may i'm just like okay this is it i think it's really interesting that you said that her whole sense
0: of purpose is derived from her role as a mother being your parent and now that you are obviously a fully grown adult you're super independent you don't need her in the same way that you did when you were a kid. So I think you need to get her a grandchild. <laughs> because I think it's the same thing for a lot of moms. I think for my mom too, I think that, I think that's the one thing that she's probably proud of in her life.
2: But your mother is a grandmother now.
0: Exactly. So I think that her sense of purpose is renewed. And now there's all this love and attention for my niece and wanting to be a really great grandmother. So you need to give your mom... <laughs> A grandchild. Are you ready to
2: do that? No pressure. Um, Do you even, do you want kids? Well, that's the, that's the big question. Um, To be a parent looks so hard and I don't know why people (laughs) want to do it. I honestly don't know. It's always been my biggest
0: question, honestly, because I don't have that instinct. You know what I mean? I don't have even the slightest desire to have a child. I kind of want a dog. (laughs) (laughs) But even that, I'm like, God, that's a lot of responsibility. (laughs) So imagine a child. And that really is my biggest question. What is the motivation? Because when I see everything that my mom went through, when I see everything that parents have to go through, all the stress, there's this saying that, you know, to be a mom is to have your heart live outside your body for your whole life. I can't handle that. Like, I need my heart protected deep inside. Like, I just don't know what makes anyone want to have a child. And again, I know that sounds mean, but I I mean it from a sense of pure curiosity because I don't have that drive. I don't have that desire. I, I feel like I'm barely holding on myself. And like, if I had to take care of someone else on top of it, I would crumble.
2: I actually like children. I actually, you know, enjoy their company. I always thought I didn't
0: (laughs) until, you know, I became an aunt and like, I feel so transformed. Like just being around my niece feels healing. Mm. Just watching her curiosity, um, watching her excitement over everything, watching her little attitude emerge, (laughs) you know, obviously my niece's parents are straight, but I think that My niece is really lucky that there is a queer person in the family to Mm. be, I don't know, to be the
2: guide, to be the person she'll hopefully know will never judge her for anything. And that's the thing about queerness and parenting that I think can be so interesting. It's not only to let the child be who they are and be free and have these conversations and queer people have a lot to contribute. But in terms of challenging the binary, we also need to challenge the binary of being a dad, being a mom. And I feel like we need to create new language, new categories, what it means to bear a child, but not being a mom. Like that's a huge thing. Like Like being non-binary and
0: having a kid or or being
2: transmasculine and have carrying a child. and, And we have to like, and these realities need to be celebrated because I think that's what I love about being queer and being a part of this community is like, the multiplicity of possibilities—it's endless—and that's what we're giving the straights, mostly for free. So all of this, all the work that we've done on like on on gender in recent years, I feel very excited because we get to do it. Me on too. Parenting, but
0: straight people collectively, as far as I oh, can see, not <laughs> are not as far along as we would like them to be. Yeah. Honestly. I mean, this is why we exist. We're doing. We're doing our part. <laughs>
2: chosen family is doing her part. (laughs) Oh, God. Our guest today, Andrea Bennett, has written about being a queer parent, a non-binary parent. Um, But before moving to Powell River, B.C. and having a child, um, Andrea became one of the most celebrated queer writers in Canada. Their stories have appeared in The Atlantic, The Golden Mail, The Walrus, Mizonev, and so many other publications. But beyond all of this, what really drew us to Andrea is that they're so real. They're so honest.
0: And that honesty and transparency really comes through in their brilliant collection of essays titled Like a Boy But Not a Boy. It's a book that covers such a spectrum of topics, but Andrea manages to navigate these very multi-layered subjects in a way that feels accessible, human, and even funny.
2: One example of this is the last chapter where they write about all the jobs and the apartments they've had over the years. And it sounds very mundane, but they make it sound relevant, important, and formative. And we had to ask them about that.
1: Running title changed, like in the writing, because I moved again and yada yada. Uh, Thirty-seven jobs and twenty-one houses. Yeah, <laughs> which is a and lot. It's got the tally's got up since the publication of the <laughs> book. I worked at Adbusters, Valley Village, Subway, Tim Hortons, uh, Curry in a Hurry in Guelph, Ontario, The Cornerstone, Earth Dance Organics Bakery. Um, I've worked a lot of different places and the tally kept changing as I was trying to write the essay. Cause I kept like these different places with like surface in my brain, but the impetus for this essay is the first time that I went to the national magazine awards in Toronto, Ontario. And when you have sort of become a writer in Montreal or Vancouver, and then you head to an industry event in Toronto, it is terrifying. Everyone is so well-coiffed, um, a-line skirts, the sort of rich girl wave haircut. Um, and you know, I showed up, I had come across the country from Vancouver. I'd forgotten to bring any sort of formal stuff. So I was in like borrowed clothes and Birkenstocks and show up to this industry event. And, um, from the serving end of things, I'm familiar with the food, but from the eating end of things, I'm like, Prosciutto wrapped melon. Okay, this is where we are. Um, and I just sort of felt like, you know, at the time I was like, oh no, I don't belong here. Um, but then later on, as I was sort of thinking about it, and I was like, not everyone in that room is truly a fancy person, right? Like, they can't all be from fancy areas of Toronto and family money. I don't know. I just wanted to render that aspect of the industry a little bit opaque and make it feel less like we're all sort of well put together people who know what to do with the melon wrap prosciutto when it, when it arrives in a little <laughs> platter.
0: That chapter ends sort of with this, you know, sort of conclusion of you buying a home and sort of finding this kind of stability after, you know, X number of jobs, X number of places lived and this sort of you know, instability that goes back to the childhood that you've described having an alcoholic parent, was the desire for safety and security something that was always motivating you? And do you feel like you've found that now?
1: Yeah. um, My home growing up, uh, I still have a close relationship with my dad, but in some ways, in a lot of ways, I didn't feel like safe in my, the home that was uh, my family of origin home. And so... I think that is definitely something I have been seeking my whole life. My partner and I bought a house in Powell River somehow. I don't exactly even totally know how. And I felt this intense restlessness within me. Like, okay, what are we doing? Like, why aren't we packing up all of our stuff? (laughs) So I have all this like leftover anxiety, even though I recognize that I'm in a very lucky place. Like in some ways, the place I was working to get towards. And now I'm here, but... I haven't like my brain and my body haven't sort of settled into the idea that I am, I'm safe. Like I I don't have to pack up after a year.
2: So much of your book is rooted in being working class and the sort of like ways how class is kind of invisibilized or we don't talk about class or we don't talk about money. Um, and one thing that you do really, really well, I find is portray the realities of young queer people and queer people in smaller communities across the country, in cities as well. I really appreciated the Everyone is Sober and No One Can Drive series. So it's 16 portraits of just queer people who came of age after marriage, gay marriage was legalized in, um, in Canada. Um, what have you learned about our generation? Like speaking to all of these people and, and I have to say, I'm sober and I got my license last year. So the title <laughs> <is> spot on, <laughs> spot on.
1: Yeah, that was initially a jokey working title. And then at the end of the interviews, I was like, yeah, it's actually true. We'll keep it. Um, Or like broadly speaking, true. I felt like this book in some ways would be a snapshot of my coming of age story in essay form. But I felt like instead of just having my story or my voice, it would be... Good or interesting or beneficial to speak to a bunch of different people who had who were around the same age and had grown up in different places, but like a lot of people I spoke with did have uh, difficult or problematic relationships with alcohol and substances, which is a really sort of natural coping method for having come of age in a derogatory space, and so um, many of us now that we're in our mid or late thirties or whatever have develop different relationships with substances and alcohol, whether it's like scaling way back or being sober. And then the none of us can drive thing. I think And yeah. it comes about, you know, when you, if if you leave your family of origin, if you leave your home um, when you're 16, 17, 18, and your priority is not like I would like. A, I want to buy a car with my part-time job money, but like I have to save up rent money to get the hell out of here. Then you just don't necessarily get a license. Your priorities are shifted. So um, I guess that would be this. There is the like jokey part of it. Like none of us can drive when we need to move. We have to call the like one person in the friend group who can <laughs> who can get a U-Haul or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean the the material reality of that is probably that we we're all like pooling our pennies to get run money to live somewhere else.
0: Yeah, yeah. it is for sure. Um, is there so, you know, in addition to those things that you've mentioned, is there a particular trait or maybe a series of traits that you feel really is specific to queer millennials, like this specific generation that maybe is different from the generation before us and the generation that's coming up after us?
1: I think many of us are sort of quite insecure um, and like insecure overachievers. It's like one <laughs> theme that came forward for me, interviewing people um, and um, often that desire that a desire to sort of be an A plus student or, or be like the best of one's area, basically to eke out a living um, was sort of a theme that came through pretty strongly. and. Um, I think what I've learned is that probably in 50 years, people will look back on same sex marriage as this like major turning point in, in, for like queer rights in Canada. But growing up during that period where like most of us came, were of age to technically to like marry by the time that that legislation came through, it's not like we flipped a switch from like things were bad. Things are great now.
2: I love how Andrea is framing queer millennials as the first generation to come of age with gay marriage. And it's true, it's been the big social change of our time. It happened when I was 19. Um, And even though I don't know if I want to get married, I don't think so, I can't help but like see it as this like conservative, capitalistic, co-opting of of queerness and I don't know that in the end we won long term by, by fighting this fight. Well, I think too, it's like the
0: powers that be can't deny that queer people exist. So it's like, okay, you can exist but be like us, get married, have kids, you know, fit into our paradigm. I want to talk about, you know, one of the biggest running narratives through the book, which is your identity as a non-binary person. Um, I think for people who exist outside of the gender binary, um, there is a process of defining our gender identity that we all sort of undertake. And for some people, that process is relatively short. For others, it's a lifetime. And I'm wondering if you can sort of describe your relationship to labels and how that's evolved over time as you've maybe come to a more solidified idea of your identity.
1: Yeah, I totally hear that. Not the resistance to, but like the trouble that labels can bring up. And I think existing outside of the gender binary, for a lot of folks who fit into that, fluidity is like in part... Uh, it comes part and parcel with that. And our cultural understandings of gender, even mainstream cultural understandings of gender, change over time and in context. And so expecting trans people to have like a fixed socially understandable identity to people like while all these other things are changing is like kind of a big ask. But yeah, I think it's in the tomboy essay, which I originally wrote for Hazlitt that labels had been helpful for me because it allowed me to find a sort of community of people who were thinking about things in similar and different ways than me. Um, Another person I interview in those interstitial essays she felt like that idea of womanhood, like had set tra- some traps for her, felt like constricting, but what felt right to her was to, um, to live as a, like a quote unquote, like failed woman to like expand the idea of what womanhood is. And that she, you know, she felt like a woman and she didn't owe anyone anything else like to prove that that was true. Um, and where I landed was somewhere different where I landed was like, Oh, non-binary identity exists. Perfect. I feel much more comfortable there. It's like an umbrella term. It offers me a lot of flexibility. Uh, I think it was, um, Ray spoon and Ivan coyote, you talk about like retiring from gender in some ways, but yeah, I, I think labels, have those dual outcomes of offering ways in which we can verbalize identities so that we find other people so that we can talk about these things and see our experiences reflected. But at the same time, they are, they are also restrictive in the sense too that once you have said like, I'm a non-binary person or I'm a trans woman, there will be people in your life who kind of, they're like, okay, perfect. Can you please stay there? <laughs> or, I'm comfortable with you staying there. But, you know, what I wish for is that we would all just have a little bit more flexibility for fluidity and um, exploration and that we didn't have to be culturally so focused on those categories because they are restrictive.
0: When Andrea was talking about the sort of rigid roles that men and women are supposed to perform. It really got me thinking about how the gender binary is not only limiting and constricting for trans people, but for everyone. Absolutely. This idea that we're all taught to either be one thing or another. And if you're male, then that means having to be this, 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 and this. And if you're female, it means having to be this, 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 and this. It's just so constricting.
2: I think that's true for straight people, but also for gay men. And I think our vision of, of masculinity is lacks imagination Right. as gay men. It's like, it lacks imagination. And I think that's, that's why I'm so thankful for this conversation. It's like, there are other ways and we can all win. So I wanted to know if Andrea could envision
0: what the world might look like if we're able to finally move beyond this rigid binary.
1: Culturally, I think, you know, there, we have a lot of regressive ideas about sexuality and about gender and a space in which our ideas are like the, perhaps the most regressive is around like f- family and, um, and child rearing and parent and motherhood. That's, motherhood. that's what you read about yeah. in the book. Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, it always crops up, especially when I was, um, like during the time that I was like a gestational parent, the language around pregnancy is so charged and it's seen as such an essentially feminine thing that it can be really hard as a non-binary person or as a trans man to be pregnant um, and just constantly be misgendered in really sort of painful, overt ways. Um, I think that there is an idea that making space for trans people in these life situations, uh, erodes, um, some of the rights that women have wrestled from the patriarchy. And I hear that sort of expression of anger or pain. I hear that, but the idea that trans people would be responsible for carrying that burden is a little bit, dicey or incredibly unfair and in fact I think that some of the uh, spaces that queer parents have opened up in terms of like navigation of parenting roles and household duties are things that heterosexual couples can benefit from and we've seen this with a pandemic like so many articles about heterosexual women having to take on all of this extra labor well, if we didn't have such regressive ideas about what women were supposed to do and what men were supposed to do, it would suck less for everybody. So, yes. I don't understand why we're so mad at trans people. we <laughs> being like, hey, maybe things should change a bit. Um, but it comes the- down
0: to that there is this really like, I don't know how to describe it, but the sort of, but cisgender people are so attached to the binary, you know, and it's something that I question, that I wonder about. I know that just in life, we tend to be sort of comforted by what we know and what we're used to. And even if what we know and what we're used to is limiting or negative, we are still comforted by its familiarity and we don't want to let that go. I guess that's part of it.
1: So, um, when I talked about retiring from gender, like in that non-binary umbrella, that retiring is happening like totally within my head. Like it it is, um, when you choose they, them pronouns, um, when you decide to be like, to share with the world that you're non-binary, the, the flip side of that, there's a sort of like personal freeing that happened for me. But the flip side of that is that because our society is not used to using those pronouns and is used to seeing a human being in the world and slotting them into a specific gender category, you get misgendered all the time. And, um, I'm not a particularly confrontational person, so I don't know, sort of have to like memorize these little scripts where you can like intervene with people in a somewhat consistent basis if it feels safe to do so. It's interesting when you talk about like fixedness and stability, even if it's painful, um, this is something that my friend Ben said when I was interviewing him. Um, He said, queer identity is inherently destabilizing, even if sometimes what's being destabilized is queer identity. And so that quote cropped up for me because I think as queer people, we live with the idea of instability and uncertainty and like destabilizing, uh, destabilized relationships to our material realities. And I feel like if, if queer people can can live with it and benefit from it in some ways, then straight people can too.
0: Um, I want to end our conversation with my favorite passage from the book. And it's when you say... I need the world to make just enough space for me that I can become completely unremarkable. And that is my dream because I feel like the (laughs) spotlight as a trans person is always on my gender. I always have to explain who I am to people that I don't want to explain myself to and, and all of these things that so many of us who live outside of the gender binary have to go through. And I'm wondering, What would being unremarkable look like for you in your life?
1: Growing vegetables and riding my bike and taking my kid to preschool and not being misgendered. Yeah, I'm so happy being like a boring, boring human being. I also do pet portraits now, too. So just like, yeah, there's, you know, painting dogs and cats, going for a bike ride, not being misgendered. The end. Yeah.
2: Thank you so much for um, joining us today, Andrea. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was such
0: a pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Andrea Bennett. Their essay collection, Like a Boy But Not a Boy, from Arsenal Pulp Press, is available wherever good books are sold. you
0: know there's nothing I love more than a good makeover. Oh my God, do I know? <laughs> I mean, you too. I mean, we were both obsessed with what not to wear back uh, in the day. Yeah, I do. Now there is a new makeover show, but to call it that honestly sells it so short because it goes so far beyond what we've come to expect from the genre. It's called Shine True, and it's really more of a docuseries that allows us to see trans and non-binary people form an aesthetic that really rings true to who they feel they are.
1: I describe my gender as non-binary.
0: I
3: know I'm different. I just don't know how to show it. For a lot of queer people, fashion is a way to express our inner strength. (gasps) We're here to help you blossom into the person you see yourself as. I feel so cute. This is gonna be a learning process for everybody. There is no template of what we should look like. It's a hard existence but it is also a beautiful existence.
0: One of the hosts helping the people on the show navigate this moment in their life is Richie Shazam. Richie is an incredible artist, photographer, model, trans activist, and they bring a sense of glamour, but also a kind of spiritual depth to the show that I think really takes it to the next level. So getting the chance to talk to Richie was really a lot of fun. Here's our conversation.
3: Hi, Richie. Welcome to Chosen Family. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be a part of your incredible podcast.
0: Well, first of all, congratulations on Shine True. Um, I saw the first two episodes and I'm so in love with the show. How does it feel to have it out there in the world?
3: You know what? It is one of the craziest feelings because my never-ending dysphoria of like seeing myself like moving, talking, like just my voice, you know, it's, It's definitely a bit daunting, but after watching our latest episode that premiered last night, I was at ease. The other episodes, I was like biting my nails. I was like talking over myself. So my partner and my friends who came over wouldn't like hear my voice. I was just like doing the most, and they're like, no you need to chill this looks great you look great like you're serving it's fine you're like you're sparkling and you're shining and i guess i just needed the affirmation
0: Absolutely. And I mean, I would second what they've said. You definitely shine on the show and you have such a good vibe that you're bringing to this. I mean, I personally grew up on makeover shows like What Not to Wear and the original Queer Eye. And of course, you know, the kind of makeovers that would happen on Oprah and other talk shows. And I've always just loved the idea of a makeover. What was your relationship like to makeover shows and how did you want Shine True to be different from the ones that we've seen before?
3: Honestly, love, I think that's such a profound question because we grew up watching makeover shows and it was sort of a big part of like the onset of reality television. And then you're seeing a lot of societal pressures of how one is supposed to look, how one is supposed to be like, attractive or to be seen to in order to like be successful and for me like that made me feel very like insignificant and it made me feel that that's not the right order of like what it should be it's like building it's about one building their own self-esteem and building confidence and um really working on their insides
0: i exactly and i love that and There was so much in the first two episodes that resonated with me so deeply. So first of all, the entire show really focuses on trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming folks. And the first two episodes in particular feature two non-binary folks. And it was so powerful to hear them talk about their relationship to gender. And one of them said this thing that really stuck with me about how trans people are sort of expected to either be a Ken doll or a Barbie. And what I love about Shine True is that it's so much about exploring the spaces in between those two energies. And I feel like that is definitely something we haven't seen
3: on other makeover shows. Yes, absolutely. I think that really working on this erasure of the binary and really finding what works for you. And I think that that is something so compelling about queer magic is that we're all so unique. And what makes this so incredible is that all of our participants, they're all BIPOC, you know? And I think that that in itself is such a feat because talking about transness in this way that's not homogenized and it's like white centric because I think that so much of the narrative has been that, you know, this androgynous, um, white presenting individual and that's so not the beautiful rainbow spectrum of us. And I think that that's why this, this docu-series is so powerful and special. And my subjects were my babies, you know, it's like, we spend so much time with them. And we're, we're just listening to a lot of it is just listening. We're just trying to like, let them have the floor to like, express how they're feeling. And obviously, we're just there and we're just, oh my god, this is my story too. You know, you just have this mirror reflection moment. And it's so poignant. And you're like, wow, like, I'm not alone.
0: Yeah. And I and I love what you said about listening because so many of the other makeover shows that we've been familiar with our whole lives are so much more about telling people what to do and sort of prescribing something to them. I'm curious in this year of like, isolation and confinement has your relationship to fashion changed like i know i love fashion but like i live in sweatpants now you know so i'm just curious if if your relationship to glam has sort of changed over this last
3: year it's like for me my my protective shield is my look you know like the fashions i'm like Serving the looks. I'm like my hair, my makeup, like the glam is just so important to how I tell my story. And the dialogue with fashion has obviously shifted. Like, I think that because it's like less engagement with the outside world. And now it's kind of done on our own terms. Like when I walk down the street in New York, it's like for me, I want to feel confident and I want to feel great. But I also I want to be safe and I want to I want to be. like, comfortable in myself because it's, like, you know, our energies attract attention. And I think that, you know, I spend so much time at home now, so it's, like, I rarely pull a look. I think for me it's, like, I am. Um, I care more about, like, the self-care stuff, like, about my skin care and, like, my treatments and, like, just make sure that the glow inside is matching the glow outside. And especially for us, it's vital because, we weren't taught self care. I think it's, we're writing that narrative that we deserve love too. And a part of that is treating ourselves and treating our bodies good and knowing that it's a sacred temple that deserves all the diamonds, all the rhinestones, all the, that glitz and glam, you know, we have to treat our insides as well as our outsides.
0: Totally. Um, So I just have one last question for you. And it's about some amazing news that I saw that you posted recently. So you announced that you've signed with IMG Models, which congratulations. Um, That's really big, exciting news. And recently, Bimini Bamboulash from Drag Race UK, who identifies as non-binary, also signed with a big agency. Do you think the fashion world is finally opening up to trans and non-binary folks. And what did that moment of signing with them mean to you personally?
3: You know, I, I've i been working so hard like the past 10, 15 years. Like I, I like grew up, you know, in like it, from an immigrant family, like from the Caribbean, like work hard work seven days a week like survival like always that was like ingrained in me and I never thought that as an artist I could sustain and be able to create like I kind of wrote this narrative for myself and I saw it through and we are the ones that have to pave the way although historically we are the trendsetters we are the ones that write the script for fashion and art you know we've always always done that it's like in our 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 queer trans magic you know it's 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 embedded in us and i think to be um to be seen and to be heard and to be you know legitimized by these entities is a goosebump inducing feeling
0: Yeah, I feel that so much. And honestly, just talking to you and hearing about all these experiences is so inspiring. I thank you so much for sharing with us today and I wish you nothing but more continued amazing
3: success. Thank you so much, love. It was such a pleasure.
2: obsession what are you obsessed with what am i obsessed with what are you obsessed with this week thomas um it's a long running obsession (laughs) (laughs) it's an instagram account run by a mom the mom of a five-year-old but the five-year-old is the star of the account so the five-year-old's name is brody brody shaper the whole point of this is that brody's a dancer and he's a very, very good dancer. So we kind of follow his journey and I've been following Brody for two years. So I started (laughs) following Brody when he was three. Um, He was just getting started taking dance lessons and his parents just let him wear dresses some days and then more mask outfits. Some other days he's wearing butterfly clips in his hair and also tells his parents that he has a girlfriend Ella uh, while wanting to live in a unicorn or rainbow house and the thing is, bef- because he's so young, he doesn't need to say who he just his. He just is who he is. Right. He just brings joy, like pure joy, this and it's is, not creepy. It's a. I mean. I wouldn't put like footage of my child on the Internet, <laughs> but the way because it's like family made and it's not like it's it's, it's like, not on
0: TLC. It's yet. very
2: edited. There's no drama. Like okay. it's all very positive. It's just and very, about the
0: art of dance, the
2: art of dance. And Brody is like, you know, like the first ballet class and then taking tap and like and the thing is he's very talented. So he picks up every dance very easily. Um As a child who did one year of dance, (laughs) (laughs) I do live vicariously through Brody. No, but to be honest, like I remember being five and at five it's where, it's when I started to like struggle with my queerness. So Mm. to see, it's very healing for me to like just see this child being kind of like shepherded by the most loving parent, hot dad. The dad is so hot. (laughs) so hot <laughs> daddy gorgeous daddy gorgeous <laughs> and then the mom is very supportive and all the all the siblings um what are you obsessed with
0: um so I'm obsessed with Wake Island's new album it's called Born to Leave Wake Island is a Montreal and New York based electronic pop duo who are both from Lebanon and so much of this new album I mean even the title Born to Leave is about leaving Lebanon it's about the immigrant experience and what it means to, once you've left your native country, to watch it sort of go through an extremely difficult time. So to watch this electro-duo channel all of these feelings in music, in music that makes you want to dance, I think is brilliant. If i had to choose like my favorite genre of music is like i mean i can't resist a good synth (laughs) bass but like (laughs) when you infuse that with a kind of melancholy as well kind of like robin dancing on my own a lot of kylie minogue stuff like the dance pop that has a sadness to it and wake island definitely fits into that universe but their universe is so specific and there's a real warmth that comes through this like electro sound that I think is mesmerizing and really does connect on an emotional level. I really, really encourage everyone to listen to this beautiful album.
2: Brody's Instagram account is at BossBabyBrody. Wow. I'm inspired by Mother's Day <laughs> <laughs> in the end. Are you ready to have a child? Uh, no, not necessarily, but I have to say as a cis person, hearing these conversations and having these conversations with uh, non-binary artists and creatives, and people have to remember, like, hearing non-binary people and trans people share their experiences not only for other trans and non-binary people, and I think more cis people have to pay attention to the variety of gender experiences and Absolutely, it's such a joy to be making the show with you because I get to like be inspired by all these stories.
0: And with that said, it's time for the credits—the best part of the show,
2: <laughs> always. Chosen Family is produced by me, Trana Winter, and me, Thomas LeBlanc. Aiden McMahon edits and
0: mixes the show. Nantali and Dongo is our contributing producer. Chosen Family's music
2: is by the Lost Boys. Judy Z. Gu is our digital producer. Tina Verma is our senior producer. And Arif Narani is the executive producer of CBC Podcasts. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Vi Studio. We are recording this season at Tomei Park Studio. Follow us on Instagram at Chosen Family Show. We also have our column with Extra Magazine. It's called That's The Way It Is, extramagazine.com every second week. It's so much
0: fun. (laughs) And also we're doing a video series with Extra too. It's called Lucky Stars and every month we are roasting each Zodiac sign one by one.
2: it's, it's Cher's birthday this week. Happy birthday, Cher. <laughs>
0: <laughs> of course, listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Take care, everyone.
0: For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.